If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians in the third chapter. I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the scriptures, and we are going to start our reading with the first verse of chapter 3, and read down through uh, 13. Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 13, let's hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on your behalf, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power to me. Though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that God has, that has, He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have the boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. And so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to God in prayer. Please pray for me as, you, as I preach. Pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of God's word this morning. Then I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray. God and Heavenly Father, we pray and we plead for your grace as we consider these great truths that enlighten our minds about the church. And pray, O oh God, that you would help us not to be distracted. And pray that you would cause your spirit, O oh God, to be working in the midst of this congregation. That uh, the word that I preach would come forth with clarity and with unction. And the word that I preach would be true to the scriptures. And that you would apply it to the hearts of your people, O oh our God. Hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you uh, to name a particular piece of art that kind of defines the artist, which piece would you name? If that was the benchmark of his work. If I asked you to think about Leonardo da Vinci, perhaps you would mention the Sistine Chapel and all the beautiful painting there. But the painting of paintings, likely the most famous painting in the world, is Mona Lisa. And uh, when Melinda's aunt and uncle took us to Paris, we went to the Louvre. 
And I was looking at this painting, and I heard one man say to the other standing next to him, this is the most famous picture of all time, Mona Lisa. Or if I was to mention Beethoven, uh, what would you say about the benchmark of Beethoven's work? He wrote an opera. He wrote many uh, uh, pieces for the piano, concertos, sonatas. He wrote nine symphonies. An amazing thing about it. He was deaf. He was not deaf all of his life, but can you imagine doing the kind of work that he did and being deaf? We had a man that used to attend here, uh, Askenazi, and he was a concert pianist or a trained pianist. I don't know if he's a concert now, but he's a doctor. And he told me that Beethoven put the piano on the ground and feel the vibrations of it when he played notes. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But somehow or another, he wrote some absolutely beautiful pieces. And probably the best-known piece that he wrote was the Fifth Symphony, most recognized and probably the benchmark of his work, according to many. Or if you mentioned the uh, four lads from Liverpool and you were going to say the best album that they ever recorded and released, what would it be? And many would say Sgt. Pepper's. And I would agree with that. What about God? God works every single day of your existence. Psalm 19 talks about the fact that we see God's handiwork in the creation. God's hands, his involvement in our lives are constant. But if we looked at the world and we were going to name something that was the benchmark of God's glory, what would it be? And according to what Paul writes here, it's the church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the benchmark of God's labors. In this letter, the Apostle Paul, as you know, as I've told you a couple of weeks ago, that he begins uh, chapter 3 and verse 1 with, For this reason, what he writes in between there is parenthetical, and he picks up again the thought in verse 14 where he goes and he begins to pray this prayer for the Ephesians, which is beautiful, which we're going to look in that in detail, uh, I guess, this next Lord's Day. But as he goes into these verses that are in between verse 1 and verse 14, he talks about his life. He talks about the revelation that was given to him by God. He talks about his calling, which is to preach the gospel. He's the unlikely one when he talks about the fact that uh, he is the chief of sinners, that he is the least of all the saints, that uh, he had persecuted the church, but grace was given to it. And I think it was... Uh, uh, it was either Alistair Begg or, again, uh, that Irishman, Donnelly, that said that this demonstrates that all callings to the ministry are by God's grace. He called the Apostle Paul, so there is no room for pride in the life of any pastor or in the life of any preacher. But rather what it should stimulate is understanding this is humility. So the Apostle Paul then uh, goes through this. And this morning, uh, we're going to pick up again uh, at verse 9 when he talks about his calling again specifically to bring to the Gentiles the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then in verse uh, um, 
10, where he says this, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now, that might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so again, the hallmark of God's glory is seen in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that some more in just a minute. But have us to see this this morning, that God's wisdom and redemption is displayed in his church in a very, very concrete and brilliant way. Three things this morning. God's work of salvation is inextricably rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it is a demonstration of his wisdom And the end result of God's work of salvation is that work gives us access to the throne of grace. And not with timidity, as Paul says here further on. In the first place, then, God's work of salvation is inextricably rooted in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know from Scripture that the saints of old believed in life after death. We know as well that this one man, Enoch, in Genesis was taken to heaven. We know also that the prophet Elijah was taken up into heaven. We know that David, through his words, believed that though the child had died that was born through his affair with Bathsheba, David was convinced that child was in heaven when he said, He can't come to me, but I will go to him. A reference to that the child had gone to be with the Lord, and certainly those who have the hope of the covenant have the right to claim that kind of hope and confidence that the children of believing parents who die in infancy go to be with the Lord. Well, though it was present in the Old Testament, uh, the reality of it was rather hidden from them, the reality of exactly how it was going to take place. And you know that uh, we learn from the book of uh, Hebrews that the weekly offering was a reminder to them that the sins had not been paid for, that they still had to offer this week after week after week, and then the atonement once a year had to be offered as well when the priest would go in and offer the sacrificial lamb and sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of the lamb and so forth. It was they understood that redemption had not been accomplished. And so as to the how it was going to be done, and as to the who would be involved in the benefits of that, this is what Paul is dealing with here in the text this morning. He uses the word mystery seven times in the book, chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 5, and chapter 6. It's a recurring theme, which if it's a recurring theme, that means it's important. It's significant. Why is it that this term mystery the Apostle Paul uses here on these occasions in this book of the Ephesians is because of this? It conveys an important truth about the gospel. The word mystery conveys a very important truth about the gospel. And the truth of the matter, the fact of the matter is that from ages past, it had been in the mind of God to include those outside of Israel into the church to enjoy the benefits of the covenant. That was not known. Here's a question for you. Was it that the Jews were seeking to spread the word of the Jewish people so that they outside might come into their fellowship and be a part of their community? The answer to that is no. They were not doing that. 
They were a group unto themselves. There was no effort to evangelize on the part of the Jewish nation. They were prideful. They were very, very proud of our, the, what they call our, our father Abraham, you remember. When they were talking to Jesus in John chapter 8, I tell you, God's able to raise up stones from these uh, children from these stones to God. Our father Abraham, and a very distinct culture and a very unusual relationship in that God had called them. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Of all the nations in the world, you only have I called. You only have I set apart as my own. But in the New Testament, it's different. And so that now the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has been accomplished by him coming into the world, by his life, death, and resurrection. And now the people of God were going to be the people throughout the world, as was God's plan from all eternity. And you see the Jewish converts who came into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, they were so woven into their their way of thinking, Jewish customs, that they said, well, these Gentiles who've been converted, they ought to be circumcised. They need to have the sign of the covenant placed upon them. In Acts chapter 15, 1 through 3, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion, I love the way Luke puts stuff. No small storm. No small discussion. <laughs> uh, and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas, and some of the others very uh, were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. It came up again in Galatia, where there were Judaizers in Galatia saying, these Gentiles have got to be circumcised. And we understand it was a very much a deep part of their culture and their customs as they had to be circumcised. It was a law they had to be circumcised. But now you see that things are different. As the dispensation of the gospel has now come. And there is no need for them to have that sign placed upon them. But still, the Jews of the first century thought it was something that was so important it had to be done that they could not have salvation. So Paul emphasizes throughout this letter. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is no longer simply Jewish. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ now is to be preached throughout the world. You know, Acts chapter 1, I think it's verse 8 or 9. About carrying the word in Samaria, Judea, and throughout the part, various parts of the world. That's an outline of the whole book of, gospel, uh, the whole, the whole book of Acts. That's its outline. So Paul emphasizes this, that in the New Testament, there would be those who are not Jews would be part and partial to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He emphasizes this mystery. Again, the mystery of the how it would be accomplished and who would be involved in that um, blessing that God would give to his people. That's the mystery that has been revealed. And so the Apostle Paul, as he says here in the text, is called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. a question. If Paul was called to preach the gospel, is it okay, as some want to do today, to change the message a little bit, to make it a little more palatable? Why do we always have to talk about sin? Why can't we talk about pleasant things? 
like picnics. Why can't we talk about fun? Why do we always have to talk about this sin business? Because Christ did not come so we may have picnics. He came so that we may have life in him through faith and his life and his death and his resurrection. That is key. Key to the gospel is the birth, the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something that has to be talked about. And I don't remember if it was Alistair Begg or if it was um, on Donald, um, the, the Irishman, uh, which he died, by the way. Kathy and Tim knew him. What a privilege to have met uh, Edward Donnelly and to have been able to hear him preach in person. Uh, one of them talked about the fact that shall we alter the message to make it more palatable as some churches, in fact, do. Many sermons have nothing to do. Uh, they're empty of confrontation. They're empty of exhortation. They're empty of reproofs. Because people don't like to hear that. They don't like to be told that they're sinners and they need to repent. They don't like to hear that. Yet the simple fact is every one of us are sinners and every one of us needs to repent daily. So do we alter the message? Well, Paul was called to preach the gospel, and that gospel is not to be altered. It's not to be changed. I'll tell you an incident that happened in our presbytery. I'm not going to tell you who it was. A church was started over in uh, San Antonio. And so the minister that was going to be the organizing pastor went throughout the cities and said to the people there, what would you like to see in worship services? Give me your opinion. What would you like to have in worship? If you were going to come and be with us, what would you like to see in the service? That is wrong. That's just wrong. We have the dictates of what we're to have in in services and worship in the Scriptures. And yet, in order to appeal to many people, in order to take down the offense of the gospel, if you will, in my opinion, that's what it's doing, uh, then you ask people what they want and what they would like, and then you try to incorporate it and change it a bit so that it makes them comfortable and they're happy with it. The gospel. Well, the second thing is that God's work of salvation demonstrates his wisdom. We can consider God's wisdom in two ways. One is in creation. We can see God's wisdom clearly in creation. And uh, it, again, is reflected for us or displayed for us or uh, spoken of in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. I was talking to Joseph this morning about some man. I cannot remember his name. But he's a fellow that has written some books in intelligent design. He argues against evolution and against God creating the world, I cannot think of his name. It doesn't matter. In the book of Proverbs, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The orderliness of the creation. It's not one of chaos. It is by God's design that plants take in our carbon dioxide and give off oxygen. It's by God's design. It's by God's design that the planet Earth is in its particular orbit at the perfect place. And it goes around the sun 24 hours, one revolution, day and night. It's not by chance. It's by God's design. 
So we see God's wisdom throughout the creation. And Paul talks about that in the book of Romans. His attributes are clearly seen through what has been made, the wisdom of God, the power of God, clearly seen through what has been made. But, and I would say the hallmark, I would say the benchmark of God's wisdom is the church. Why? Because what happened at the fall spoiled, ruined, poisoned our relationship with God. No more would it be a pleasant relationship. No more would it be one characterized by peace. But rather now, because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, because of the rebellion of the race, there is no longer a sweetness to the relationship. But as a matter of fact, apart from God's grace, the created world lives under God's condemnation and wrath. And we see God's grace at the early onset of sin when he comes to Adam and Eve in the garden. What could possibly be done now, given God's holiness, given God's justice, what could possibly be done to rectify the whole thing? Animals slain day after day after day with the gallons upon gallons of blood being spilled had no power to take away sin. Men couldn't die for sinners. Men, no man could not do that. But rather it is that God came up with the idea of the second person that God had taking flesh upon himself. Do you see God's wisdom with that? And so by the work of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is it, the angel says they long to look at these things. They delight in it. This blew me away when I was reading this, and I was talking to Melinda about it. She said, well, I said, well, the angels really worship us. Well, so is God. That ain't the point, Woodrow. That's not what the text says. We have to deal with what the text says. And what does it say? And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's talking about angels. The question is this. Um, Is this talking about the elect angels, or is this talking about the non-elect angels? Because they're mentioned in the scriptures, those powers in the heavenly places, those rulers that, that we struggle against, those things in reality. Our real struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against evil forces. I don't think this is, has in mind, I don't think Paul has in mind at all uh, Satan. Satan does not care about the glory of God. He despises God. He despises God's people. He cares nothing about the glory of God. But rather, these are the angels that God has made, the elect angels that are perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. They delight in God's work in the church. They delight in it. They marvel at it. Would God give us the grace to have the mindset of angels? That our faith would not be ho-hum. That by God's grace, we could look at the church and just marvel at God's wisdom displayed in the work of the church. Work that he's doing. Not that we're doing. Work that he's doing. And as he's bringing together from all over the world, people of different languages, 
people of different cultures, and bringing them into one body through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the angels love God so much, they love Christ so much, they love seeing Him glorified. And He's glorified in the church. As the church is established, as the church is built up, as the church grows, there's the handiwork of God. And as you sit here, thank you very much, as you sit here this morning, you recognize, if you're converted, that you're a product of the handiwork of God. You're here because of God's grace. Not because of your intelligence. Not because of your strength of will. Uh, not because of any other reason at all, except God loves you, and God saved you, and God determined to save you because it pleased Him to do so. And the angels are watching God do this because all this, the end result of the end gathering of the church is going to be God's glory. At the end of the ages, when we are raised from the dead, and the church is there as one, through different languages, different cultures, different customs, whatever the case may happen to be, that there will be God's people and God will be glorified in the church in a very concrete and real way. He will be glorified in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love the fact that these angels delight in looking at and studying God's glory, His wisdom shown in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the last thing then, uh, I could stay here for a while. Um, it's just such a wonderful text. The last thing is that God's work and his redemption and salvation gives us access to the throne of God. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now, what's he talking about there? Bold access with confidence through our faith in him. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about coming into the assembly of God's people and worshiping. And doing so with peace of mind and heart. You know, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. Um, it's a sad commentary, at least in my thinking. I may be all wrong about this. That the most ignored service of the church the prayer meeting. That's been the case ever since I can remember. At Bay Street Presbyterian Church in Hattiesburg, uh, we had Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night prayer time. Wednesday night prayer time, there may be 15 people there, maybe 20 on a good, good Wednesday evening. But why? Well, I know people are busy. People live a long way away. Things come up with children, things you have to do, and all that sort of thing. We've cut hours now to once a month. One Wednesday night a month is it. Then we ask people to be here for corporate prayer. And I'm going to ask you to do this. If you can't be here 
or you just don't want to be here, pray Wednesday night. At some time when we're praying up here, pray for the church. The things you, you know this, you know the people here, you know what their needs are. Pray about them. Take about thirty minutes every at least that Wednesday evening, one Wednesday night a month, and pray about the matters of the church with your husband, your friends, whoever they may happen to be, with your family, whoever it is. Pray with them. This next Wednesday, we meet at six o'clock. We're going to have supper. And then we're going to have a Bible study. We're again still looking at the, the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. And then we'll have prayer. And I hope to come that the majority of the time will not be spent talking about prayer requests, but praying about prayer requests. I think it was Edward Donnelly that said, no, no it was Alistair Beck quoting somebody that said, um, in our prayer time, we spend more time praying to keep people out of heaven than we do trying to get sinners into heaven. That's good. That's true. We spend more time in our prayers praying to keep people out of heaven, talking about believers, than we do spending time praying to get sinners into heaven. I thought that was very, very telling. Well, here uh, he says here that we have access to God with confidence and boldness through our faith in him. We come to God only and along through the Lord Jesus Christ. Again and again, it's pointed out to us. Do you treasure your salvation? Do you treasure your faith? Do you treasure knowing Christ and being a part of his church? Is it really something that is precious to you? More precious was this. More precious than your home. More precious than your money. More precious in your family, knowing Christ. More precious than anything in the world, knowing Christ and being a part of his family. Jesus will not take second place in our lives. There was a song by Elvis Presley. I don't seem to mind somehow playing second fiddle now. Christ does not play second fiddle in our lives ever, ever, ever. He won't stand for it, as a matter of fact. Just be first and central in our lives, always. The last thing is that the Apostle Paul, because they have this access to Christ in prayer, uh, to God and through the Lord Jesus Christ, he tells them this, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. These people love the Apostle. And he is in prison or jail because of them. Because of teaching and preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. And there were some Jews there that didn't like it, so they put him in prison. Put him in jail for preaching. Just as John Bunyan was put in jail for preaching the gospel as well. I think he was in prison 11 years. And his daughter Mary used to bring him food. His daughter was blind. Well, the Apostle Paul is in prison simply for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says here not to lose heart over what I'm suffering. I'm not discouraged, Paul would say. Uh, don't be uh, in any way dissuaded uh, from your joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, don't fail to recognize God's sovereignty and God's goodness. Don't lose heart and become discouraged. One commentator said this, 
If you were always pessimist, ready to lower the flag after a long strain. But our instructions here in the, from the Apostle Paul is that we don't do that. We continue to cling to and continue to lean upon and continue to be encouraged because our God rules over all things. I was talking to someone the other day, and he said he had a dream that he and I were going to hang Rusty Hawkins. He must have been watching Lonesome Dove or something. And we were going to hang him on the beach. And I insisted upon it. Now, what he had done, I what my dream, I don't have any idea. But he said we attempted once and we failed. And I said, we've got to do it again. We've got to do it again. And we attempted a second time, and we fell. And he was talking to me. He said, I don't think we should be doing this. And I said, yes, we have to do it. It's proper. It's right. And then he woke up. And he said he was so relieved to know that Rusty was still alive. And it gave him a sense of peace. You think about this. Do we have peace in our lives when we consider your relationship to Christ in the church? What do the angels think? What does the Lord think when he looks around us here? Those principalities that delight in the wisdom of God shown in the worship service. Oh, here's one fellow that is sleeping. Here's one fellow that is bored beyond imagination. Here's one individual that is angry with someone else in the church, and all they can think about is that anger. Here's one individual that is thinking about lunch and how soon we can leave to go home and eat lunch. Please let me go. Please let me out. What is a God, our God and Savior, think as he looks at us and examines our hearts as we sit in the worship service Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Is he pleased with us? Or is it that he's not pleased with us at all? And we need to come to repentance and pray for God to help us as we sit in this most splendid time of being together as God's people for worship. I was reading, again, I got this from uh, Edward Donnelly when he says this, When the church is not what she should be, and the glory of God in the world is dimmed, and the world cannot see the glory of God that should be displayed in the church. I remember years ago when Jimmy Swaggart was going to see a prostitute, and he got caught by another pastor in town that didn't like him. And Jimmy Swaggart got up before his congregation. And he was crying, and he said he had sinned, he was apologizing, and that sort of thing. They showed that on a talk show to the person. Everybody in that, in that audience was laughing, laughing. One of that stuff came out with Jim Baker, Jerry Falwell said, they are laughing at all ministers in restaurants now. Because it was such a poor example of what the church should be. A poor example. So I ask you this, uh, what is your uh, commitment 
to being one who's in the church, you would see to it that God is glorified in your life. As you sit here and as you go home as well, you remember that. And then the last thing uh, is this business of the privilege of prayer. As Charles said this morning, you say you would pray if you were told not to and even given your life for it, but do you pray now? Having a scheduled prayer life is not a bad idea. As a matter of fact, it's a good idea. I mean, you can have these prayers that you pop out during the day. Uh, Bill Smith, our old uh, uh, campus minister, told me that when people were leaving the church and he would shake their hands, they'd ask him about something to pray for. He would offer a little prayer at the time. Nothing wrong with that. And to pray when you come under conviction, when you're driving your car and you get very, very angry, you know, like some of y'all do. Ask for repentance, ask for the grace of forgiveness. We need to make a great deal of prayer in our lives. And scheduling prayer is not a bad idea. Just like scheduling Bible reading is not a bad idea. Because you get up in the morning, and before you know it, life's happening, and you ain't got time. You've got to go here, you got to go there, you got to get this done, got to get that done. And so it escapes you. Have a time of scheduled Bible reading. Have a time of scheduled prayer in your life, whatever it may happen to be. But it's great to start the day with the Lord, and that is certainly a good thing to do. And so as I leave this section, I would ask you again, as I ask every Lord's Day, do you know Jesus? Are you saved? Or are you simply religious? Do you truly know the Lord Jesus Christ? And so that you delight in coming to worship? You delight in reading your Bible. You delight in spending time in prayer. Dan said something to me this morning. If you know nothing in your life, it was in Chuck's, if you're not coming to Sunday school, start coming. Chuck's a good teacher. He's teaching the mortification by John Owen. A little book. Uh, I've got, uh, if you want a copy of it, I'll give you mine. I've got, uh, and I think Dan's going to order some more. But he said this. If you know nothing in your life of a sense of condemnation, and guilt for your sin, and seeking to put that sin to death, you're not converted. There was a big difference in Esau's regret over his sin. He was upset about the consequences of it. Not the fact that he rejected God, but the consequences of it. May our guilt, when we have it, be because we have disappointed God and been displeasing to Him. But the wonderful thing... The wonderful thing, he's always has his arms opened up for us, telling us to come to him. Always. He's a good father. Let's pray.